Okay. I'm glad you came here. <laughs> you have uh, you have kids? Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. Teenagers? No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> we just embrace ourselves, you know. Uh, we just embrace ourselves ready for teenagers. Uh, <laughs> twelve. He's twelve. Twelve? Twelve, yeah. yeah. Okay. Preteen. It's a preteen. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? In your congregation you will see some congregation mem congregation member will come to you. And how can I counsel my kids right. in suffering? So I think uh, even though you don't have teenager kid, that's fine. So uh, this lecture, mm -hmm. I hope, will help you. Okay. Uh, today, uh, 오늘은 today we are going to share about living with rebellious teens. See, are you familiar with this picture? <laughs> yeah. Some some teens from your congregation or some uh, parents might have been suffering from this kind of uh, dynamic in their homes. Even though they don't reveal these matters to you, so uh, this is not something remote. Uh, it's a very practical issues. As ministers, we have to deal with. Uh, what if some congregation member comes to you say like this, my son does not listen to me, I want to give up. My instructions seem useless. If they say like that, as a pastor or counselor, church leader, how could you counsel them? It's a very practical issue. When kids are young, problems is very little. But big kids, big problems. <laughs> no, because when so they when they their physical body grow larger, in the case their problems tends to be very very uh, big. So uh, even though we don't spend a lot of times in caring for kids and their teenagers but the small um, small number of problems are so big so overwhelming to parents so this is very practical issue thankfully you are not alone in this suffering uh, Socrates you know Socrates, Socrates. Yeah. even 400 BC he exclaimed like this adolescents have contempt for authority mm -hmm. they they show disrespect for adults they monopolize the conversation and they tyrannize their teachers mm -hmm. so it means that this issue is not contemporary one mm -hmm. it's an old and old and repeated repeated theme Parents every at every age should face. So, thankfully, it's not alone. We are not alone because this issue comes alive due to the developmental aspect of human nature. So, as kids grow in their bodies and emotions and psychology. This issue cannot be avoided. You have to understand this. So, this is not just our family's problem. It's a universal issue. Universal problems, all the families. This is good news. All families with teens suffer. <laughs> That's why you put it in red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I hope this sentence encouraging you. <laughs> uh, we have to understand the difference between teens and adolescents. Teens is a term, chronological term. Mm -hmm. So, preteens is from 9 to 12 years old. Teens is from 13 to 19 
year, 19 years old. This is about real age, but adolescence is different. Adolescence is between childhood and adulthood. There's no number in here, right? So, uh, in Latin, adolescera means to grow up, to grow up. So, teenagers uh, usually grow up physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Grow, growth means change, right? We are not comfortable with change usually. You don't, we don't want to change if everything's good. But we change when situations become worse. Because change is something, changing in something is very demanding and very difficult to the person. So, uh, adolescent, adolescence is a period of change. It means that it face, it leads to a lot of problems in their life. Emotionally, socially, and physically, they suffer a lot. And so, what's important in discerning this concept is that sometimes some kids start their adolescence earlier than others. Like uh, in their, when they are 10 years old, they begin to express some signs of adolescence. In some case, even after 16 years old, they don't show any signs of adolescence. So it can be different from individual to individual. It, it can be influenced by culture or context they are living in. So we have to discern this concept. As I said before, the change of teens leads to disequilibrium, unstable causing a lot of problems in their lives. This can cause pain to surrounding people. Of course, the person, the kid itself, himself or herself, and people, including parents, it causes a lot of pain. So it's a natural process. Do you see this picture? This is a storm, big wave. Think of this. If you are standing before this big storm, how do you feel? You are in fear, overwhelmed, anxious, sometimes angry. You have to avoid to, to stay away from this sin. Yeah, run. Run, right, right. You want to run. You want to avoid the situation. Teens are going through an age of storm and stress. So living with rebellious teens, well, just teens, every teens are rebellious actually. Living with rebellious teens is like standing before this big storm. So we have to understand this. When your kids are behaving very weirdly, we have to understand that, oh, my kid is going through that kind of stage. If you don't remember that, you will be frustrated, you will be embarrassed, you will be angry, you will be fearful. This is the first question I asked. My son does not listen to me, I want to give up. My instru instructions seems, seem useless. If some church member comes to you, there are two typical responses. First, uh, therefore I will give up. My instructions seem loose, uh, useless, so it doesn't work, I want to give up. So some parents get indifferent in terms of parenting because they did their best according to their own thoughts. It does not work, so they just give up. Another one is they fear, they feel anxious. What if they don't change? What if they get more rebellious when I something truthful in front of them? So they 
become indifferent or they become fearful or anxious. Those are typical responses of parents. But scripture says parents are responsible. Indifferent, avoid, both are the opposite concept of responsibility, right? So, God asks parents to be responsible for parenting. But, thankfully, God does not ask our responsibility for the outcome of parenting. God asks us to be responsible for the process of parenting. This means a lot. For example, if you listen to this lecture, you just apply this lecture to your life, that does not guarantee the final good outcome. But I can guarantee that you will not, you will not responsible for your parenting before God in heaven. Because you did everything you need to do in the process of parenting. So, for example, uh, one teen whose father is alcoholic and whose mother just ran away. And, but he studied a lot. And he was an example of a student. He has great faith. Even in those bad family situations, some kids grow very well. But in the opposite extreme, their dad and mom, they are very devout. They, they are very faithful to God. They raise their kids according to the principle of the Bible. And they send their kids to camp. And they, they do everything for the faith of their kids. But the kid can be away from faith. Can, he, he might not go to the church. He may fail in the school. So in that case, in the second case, and in the first case, in the first case, process was not, nothing, but final outcome was good, right? In the first, second case, process was faithful, outcome was bad. If two parents stand before God, how would God respond to them? I'm sure that God will regard the second group, second parents, as faithful parents, not the first one. Do you know why? God asks us not to be responsible for the final outcome, but to the process of parenting. So it's a very important concept. You might say, oh, Pastor, in the Proverbs, if you teach kids well, you will grow well. And then you have to understand the genre of Proverbs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not automatic way. It's a general principle, even though it's included in the Bible. Included in the Bible. So you have to understand this responsibility, not for the result, but for the process. So, teenagers look like this. <laughs> they avoid the family activities. Let's go to have a wonderful dinner together. Oh, I, I, I don't want to eat. I don't want to go. They behave like this. And GPA drops at school, sleep at school, <laughs> awake at night doing the computer game. They do like this. They challenge authority, teachers and parents, pastors, they don't regard them. And they have dangerous friends. Like, uh, yeah, they are suffering from some kind of insecurity. They want to get together. They want a friendship, whatever those friends are. How dangerous they are, it doesn't matter. They just want to get together. So they want to get connected, as many friends as possible. 
and boundary tested. They demand total freedom. They ignore curfews. They refuse, they refuse church attendance. And they may show some dangerous physical signs. They sleep much, too much, or they eat too much. Sometimes they eat too little. They sleep too little. We have to, we have to guess whether, think of the possibility of depression in the case. Depression, kids don't say, I'm depressed. They show their physical, uh, their psychological disturbances in their physical bodies. They don't eat much, they eat too much. Those kinds are good sign for depression. And uh, they may lose great deal of weight and erection. Or they, their skin could colorless, uh, frequently illness because they're impaired immunity. In the case we have to suspect the possibility of drug abuse. So these kind of things can happen to teenagers. Even though church members might not reveal these facts, these tragedies uh, to pastors, but it's really happening in America. In the public school, high school, middle school, yeah, they do a lot of things uh, dangerous. They they do their hair cut like this. So we cannot understand why do they cut their hair like this. It's very weird. But they just want to do it. Then those are uh, appearances or phenomena associated with adolescence. So we might think that, then why do they behave like that? Why do they behave like so much weirdly? There are several factors. First one is medical aspect. Do you know androgen? So, male hormone? When they are young, actually it's not androgen, it's a gonadotropin releasing hormone. The hormone level is high, but when they go through this childhood period, it's low. But when they reach puberty, adolescence, it goes up. Because of this gonotropin-releasing hormone, with the response of the increased GnRH, testosterone and female hormone begin to increase. And that chemicals influence their brain, influencing their thoughts, their feelings, and their behaviors. So they behave partially because of that hormone. So weirdly. You have to understand, you have to remember that table, that picture. So when, for example, when your teenager kid come to you, say very uh, bad words to you, you have to understand that, oh, that might be a trick from that increased hormone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you think like that, you can separate the personality and the hormone, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't think like that, if you accept their words, bad words as they are, it remains your mindset continuously affecting the relationship between you and your kids. So you have to remember, but thankfully, it drops when they go into in their 20s, 30s. So um, kids in their teenagers, they are usually rebellious. They don't listen to their parents. But when they enter their 20s, they begin to uh, sweet, be sweet or calm and obedient relatively compared to the previous period. It's partially because of this hormone. Uh, second factor is a psychological fact. Why teenagers behave like that? Because there is a psychological factor. There is an issue of trust. Think of this, when kids are very small, 
the only source for trust is parents, right? Whatever parents say to them, they just believe. Preteen period. Before preteen, before teens, they put trust in parents, whatever they say. But when they reach teenagers, in that case, there are a lot of other resources for trust. For example, they read books. They listen to some lectures from famous professors or teachers. They read social media messages. There is some cultural consensus influencing upon them. So, before teen, the only source for trust is, was parents. But after teen, when they are in teenagers, they have a lot of resources for trust. So they are confused. They begin to make an issue with the opinion of parents. So you have to understand them. So uh, the rebellion of teenagers is a natural process. You have to understand. If you don't understand like that, you will be frustrated. So there are three aspects of trust. First one is love. They think like this. I have, to be, I have to be accepted by peers, my friends. I have to be loved by having sex with opposite sex. I, I want to feel accepted. That kind of mentality are dominating their mentality. Second one is significance. Oh, I have to get a good GPA because only good GPA is meaningful in my life. Or security. Uh, I have to belong to the group. Or I have to have my own things. That kind of three themes of trust are occupying their minds. So in the past, when they are little, they were little, they just accept whatever the parents says to them, but they no longer trust in parents as the only source for information. So a lot of things psychologically happening in their mindset. So you know, kids, teenagers are in struggle mentally. They think and think and consider, am I secure? Am I loved? Am I living a significant life, meaningful life? That kind of thoughts are occupying their mindset. That's the reason sometimes they don't respond to their parents as they were. So confusion, insecurity, vulnerability, these kind of things happen psychologically in their mindset. Another one is a social factor. Why teenagers behave like that? Because there is social factor. For teenagers, I said this before, they trust in peers and teachers and social medias and books. So peer pressure is so big, so enormous that sometimes they can even kill a person to feel the sense of belonging. It, it actually happened in the past. There was a radio broadcasting, uh, reporting some accident event where young teenager killed a person in the street whom they do, he, do, he doesn't know, he didn't know. And the policeman called him, asked him, why did you kill the person? He said, my group, my peer asked me to do. If we want to belong to my group, we have to kill the person, one person on the street. It's a very weird thinking. So it's an extreme example, but it says peer pressure is a lot more than, than we think influencing upon kids. So peer pressure is a very, very serious one. But Bible says, being accepted by peer, by others is good, but doing right is more important. We have to teach these kind of things. 
So finally, because of social factor, parents' authority is challenged and decreased. Decreases. So if you think your challenge, your authority is not regarded as as previously, in that case you have to accept that reality as it is. It's a normal process. And but but there is something deeper reason for they, their rebellion. I'll say this. Parents says like this. Oh, my son became rebellious when he has a dangerous friend. Or my daughter became to be angry because we moved in this area. After we moved in this area. That is right partially, but does not explain their change. The Bible says there is a deeper root for their rebellion. It is simple nature inside them. For example, see this seven years old boy just hear his dad screaming and he's in pain but he does not show rebellion against his dad. Do you know why? He has a rebellious heart inside him but he is not strong enough to combat against his dad physically, psychologically and financially. Right? But think of this 15 years old boy or 18 years old boy if his dad rebuke him in the public place do you think he will be still obedient? No. Because he has the strength to show rebellion against his dad. Physically strength, strong and he can, he can make money doing alright, part-time job, right? He can go outside, depart home. So, it means that the reason why teens become rebellious is not just because of hormone, it's not just because psychological one or social one. It's because basically the rebellious heart inside them. Other factors can influence the rebellion, the basically, they have rebellious heart inside them. We have to understand this. Uh, some parents get passive because they ignore. They think that someday it will be good. Someday my kids will be good. They ignore. They they uh, despise their responsibility. Other parents have the fear of confrontation. What if I am humiliated if I discipline my kids? What if my kids get more rebellious after my discipline? They fear, they are fear, they are anxious, so they don't touch their kids. <laughs> this is called, in terms of expertise, passive parenting. Passive parenting. The, but the Bible says parents are responsible for both love and care, and correction and discipline. So think of this question. If you say, it's me, it's me, it's me. In the case, you are doing passive parenting. For example, you avoid confrontation of the negative behaviors of your teenagers. You avoid because of fear. When your kids do something wrong, definitely wrong, like a repeated lying, in the case, you have to confront them not in an angry voice, but with the well, facts. You have to confront them. Son, this is 
sin before God, you are lying. I'm so hurt, hurt by your, your lie. You have to confront them. But some people just avoid it. In the case you are doing passive parenting. Or, you know, you know, avoid to discuss at the dinner table about the past event where teenagers did not do something good. So you, you avoid uncomfortable issues in discussion with your teens. Or you excuse too much. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because of fear. If you show too much excuse, excuses in the case you are a passive parent. And you, for example, my son, if you uh, violate curfew, you have to give me your phone for three days. If you made that rule, you have to do it. You have to let your kids, make your kids face the consequences of their faults. By doing so, they can remember, oh, violation of curfew is painful or demanding. They remember their, the pain of discipline so that next time when they are attempt, uh, tempted to violate another curfew, they remember that, oh, this is not what I want. I, I want to live with, with my smart, smartphone. So you have to let them experience the pain of consequences of sin or rebellion. But if you avoid it because you are too lovely, you are, you are too loving in the case, you are passive parent. Yeah. So, if you say, yes, yes, it's me, then you are doing passive parenting. So, Bible says, we have to be diligent in teaching, active and diligent in parenting. So, who else know and love and discipline their teens better than parents, right? You send your teens to churches. You send your teens to school. Teachers, Sunday school teachers, pastors, they teach. But do you think do they know? They know better than you about your teens? No. You are, parents are the most important person in their knowledge in their loving attitude toward their teens. So parents cannot be replaced by any other persons. So parents should be diligent and active in parenting. So discipline is not unloving. Uh, you discipline your teens, right? You don't discipline your neighbor's teens. Do you know why? Because you love your teens. If you don't love your teens, you don't discipline. So, discipline is an act of love. You have to understand this. Teens think that their intellectual knowledge goes up. They think they know everything. But their experiences are very limited. So even though we know that uh, some knowledge is, sounds good, but from our experiences of 30 or 40 years, or 50 years, we know that uh, this, even though this looks, sounds good, it doesn't work like that. We know because of our experiences, right? But teens don't, they just know intellectually. They don't have enough experiences to verify the truthfulness of their knowledge. So that's the reason why they need the discipline from their parents. So to convict a teenager for their wrong attitudes and actions is not unloving. Enforcing boundaries bless them, blesses them by enabling them to experience the consequences of knowing right from wrong. So teaching in terms of making them remember 
what are the boundaries are, what are the consequences of sins, is uh, act of love, not hate, hate, uh, love, act of hate. So, when you love someone, you should be diligent in discipline. You can apply it to your kids. Then, uh, how to live with rebellious things. Then this is how to section. Do you know what this is? Roller coaster. Roller coaster. When you go up, your mood is, is up. When you go down, you feel like you are dying, right? <laughs> Remember, living with rebellious teens or living with just teens is like uh, riding a roller coaster. Sometimes teens get obedient, study well, we go up, we go. But at soon, <laughs> after a few days, they get angry. They make us frustrated or embarrassed. We go down. It's like a roller coaster. Because their mood goes up and down like that. But in this fluctuation, big range of fluctuation, the thing that could keep the pace of parenting in a constant speed is trusting God. Let me explain this. For example, if your teens are doing good, getting praises from their teachers and Sunday school, school teachers, they are studying very well, so people compliment uh, their, uh, the teens of yours, your teens, and in the case you go up. But if they behave wrongly, you go down. If you accept their behaviors as they are, you will dance like them. If they go up, you go up. If they go down, you go down. But if you do like that, you cannot keep the pace. The secret to keep the pace is trusting God, who is the shelter and fortress, unshakable fortress. Undestructible castle who is God. For example, if you trust God in this way, if your teens are doing good, you don't get prideful. Prideful. Oh, this is what God has done to my teens, to my kids. You think like that. And in other way, if you teen, your teens behave wrongly, usually if you don't have your God in the center of your mindset, in the case you feel discouraged, you don't want to do anything because you, are, you, you broke down, you are stressed out, you want to give up. But if God is your pacemaker, in the case you think like this, oh, even though my kids are doing wrong, I am praying, finally God will restore him in his opportune time. You think like that. So, when things are doing good, getting better, you don't put your pride on your mind. As long as you trust God as the standard of your life, and you can do something even in the despair or disappointment from your teens. The secret is, secret is to trust God, unshakable fortress. So overall principle is be diligent in teaching, don't give up. Give up. Second one is check your motive for parenting. You came here, let me ask you, why did you come here? <laughs> why do you think your kids should behave very well? <laughs> In a motive. And some people say, uh, for me, uh, parents, okay, if my kids are doing very well, people say, oh, 
who is the dad of that great kid? <laughs> How could they uh, raise up the kids so well? It's elevating my reputation. It can't be like that. Or when, when I get old, they can support me financially. So there can be hidden motive. We don't say like that, but it could be hidden, unrevealing motive for the desire for good parenting. Or for the kid himself, successful life. The answer is we should put our motive on God. The reason why we should do good parenting should be God. Because of God, we have to do discipline. Because of God, we have to raise our kids very well. So God should be the most important motive for good parenting. So the third one is check your or your kid's personal identity in Christ. Christ should be my fulfillment of my needs for love and innocence and security. I said before in the previous section, kids usually think like this. I have to be accepted by peers. But we have to think like this. I have Jesus who loves and accepts me irrespective of my performances. If you could think like that, your psychological disturbances will be calmed down. And or to be to live a meaningful life, I have to get a very good GPA. That's good, but it cannot be the final goal. Instead, I'm God's masterpiece since He created me in His image. So, even though my GPA drops down dramatically, it's okay because God already made me in His image uniquely, preciously. So, and security. Oh, to be accepted, I have to do something I have to belong to this kind of group. It should be replaced by Jesus. God will never leave me nor forsake me. So this kind of truth should be repeatedly instructed to your kids. And how your perspective of your teens is important. When you see your teenagers, how do you appreciate him or her? You should think them as a God's unique creation with unique purpose. <laughs> so teens are divinely invaluable beings. You have to consider your teens like that. And uh, see this table, picture. This is age zero, age 18. When they are young, personal positional authority is so very large. So when they are little kids, dad or mom are everything to them. So in that case, whatever you say, they just listen. But as time goes on, personal, positional authority will decrease. And what is increase? increasing? Influence is increasing. Influence. Influence. It means that for teenagers, authority, claimed authority, by a position does not work. What works? Influence works. Then, oh, then how could I get influence? Influence come from, comes from integrity and accountability. So don't say like this. When you are at home, someone knocks at the door asking, uh, for asking to meet with you. Don't say your kids like this. 
Don't tell me, tell the, tell the person I'm here. <laughs> If you say like this, you are teaching dishonesty, right? So even though you, um, uh, you made some way in your life by doing like that, you are teaching dishonesty. And your teen will know that, oh, my dad is dishonest. And after several days, even though the dad says something good to the teen, the teen will just listen, but in their heart, in his heart, they might think that, oh, my dad is not, uh, is not good enough to tell the truth to me. So because of a lack of integrity, influence will decrease. Or when you drive, when you are in a car, driving the highway, don't uh, have the, don't go faster the speed limit. Okay? You are <coughs> teaching the dishonesty by violating the traffic law at the time. And when you, when you think that I made a mistake, just acknowledge and ask for forgive, forgiveness. So, have you ever said, I'm sorry, my son? Did you do it? Do you do it? Yeah. You do? Good. You're a good dad. <laughs> Some dad don't say like that. So admit your, your mistakes is a good lesson. Um, your authority might decrease by admitting your mistakes. But your influence will increase because you are, you are showing integrity. Right? So teenagers, what's important is influence. It comes from integrity and accountability. And when you set plans for teenagers, you have to discuss with your teens You should not be a, a dictator. You make every rules, um, make them obey. You're not supposed to do that. You have to have a conversation, dialogue. Dialogue is bi-directional, right? I say something, your team say something. And we meet at the center. So, like curfew, curfews. In setting curfews, you have to discuss the number of hours And uh, you have to discuss about the kinds of punishment for breaking rules and or rewards for obeying rules. You have to discuss these uh, principles with your kids because humans are made God's image. When you say something, you feel responsible. If you make all the rules, teenagers don't feel responsible. But if you Your teens say something, okay, I will do this. And after that, when he violates that rule, he feels responsible. He feels responsible. So make them say their own opinions over some issues or opinions, rules, so that they feel responsibility for they, their behaviors. And Develop intimacy. Hug. Do you hug your kids? Wow, you're a good dad. <laughs> How about you? you, do? you do you hug your kids? I have grandchildren. Okay, good. Yeah. Hug and embrace or high five is a very good practice. Simple is very influencing. Uh, because Our body and our soul or spirit or psyche are so related. If we hug someone, your psyche, your psychological aspect or soul and spirit, whatever it is called, are influenced by the physical hug. So the more you do something in a lovely way, the more intimacy you can develop. in the relationship. 
So hug and embrace. Teach them. Teach your congregation. Hug and embrace. To high five with your uh, teens. And feeling. Feeling. Uh, when you have a conversation with your teens, or when you have a conversation with your spouse, some people share just information. Did you eat something? When did you come back home? And those are good, but there's no deeper meaning or emotions involved in those informations. Facts level, conversation is superficial. When you, when you want to go deeper and deeper in the relationship, you should go to the area of feelings. So, you should say, I feel like this, when you say something to your teens. For example, uh, one couple come to the church in a car. Husband drives, wife begin to, begins to complain. Honey, why do you drive that way? so violent, violently. In that case, husband will usually get upset because that's their normal behaviors. <laughs> they don't think that is violent. So in that case, they fight in a car. But what if the wife say like this, says like this, Honey, uh, you drive like that way. I feel scary. I feel fearful because of your driving. Could you please slow down? If you don't, if one wife say like that, says like that, in that case, usually husband respond in a more favorable way, right? Because, oh, my wife get hurt by, by my driving. What's the difference? First one is just share the facts, right? Second one is the wife shared her feeling about the fact. So that's the power of feeling. So when you have a conversation with your kids, in the case you should share this uh, sentences like this, I feel something, something like that. Share all kinds of feelings, not just good ones, bad ones. So you can say, son, today uh, my, my, my day was so terrible. I feel discouraged. It's not uh, your authority might be challenged in the case, but your influence will increase because you are honest. You share your feeling with your kids. So, and when you when your kid comes back from school, what did you learn from school? Don't say like that. Just say, how do you feel? How are you feeling about yourself at school? So the point was the feeling, not the fact, right? So this kind of feeling sentence, feeling conversations are so important in developing intimacy. But confrontational <coughs> aspect is so important. The, Dr. Kellen said in the preliminary session about tell the truth in love, right? So do you know what this is? Sandwich. Do you know why do I show this to you? It's a method of confrontation. <laughs> you want to say something confrontational. It should be surrounded by good uh, remarks. Like if, if we want to say bad things to your kid, you should start from good things. Oh my son, I love you. You are doing good. Thank you for being my kid. That is this bread. But I want to take some time to discuss some event we had before. That is this part. And another bread. But I still love you. You are my precious son. So by doing so, this is different from just, son, you did wrong things in this way. In that case, they close their mindset. 
right? They close their heart. Whatever you say, because they don't feel cared about by, your, by their parents. So in confrontation, remember this. What's important is not just the message, but the method of the message. How do you deliver <coughs> the correct message is so important as much as the message itself. So remember this sandwich method. And yeah, when you the same knife can be used by surgeon <coughs> and thief, right? Yeah. <laughs> when when thief kills someone, the thief doesn't care about the cosmetics, right? And just kill the person. But surgeon, remember that how could I make this person healthy and cosmetically beautiful even though they are using the same knives they consider the result of punishment pain suffering caused by knife so you have to remember this confrontational techniques and find mentors church leaders neighbors with good reputations for example so you have kids right when you teach some lessons to your kids, do they listen to you well? Usually? Yeah, usually. <laughs> but many times in my case, <laughs> they know what I'm going to say to them. Because similar patterns of preaching are repeated by me. So they know in this situation that we'll preach like this. They know. They, because the same person are saying the same things to the kid, they, they just, they don't listen to very well. But the same content, the same message can be said to them by neighbors or by teachers. They pay attention to the lessons. Do you know why? It's different from parents nagging. Messages are same, but the messengers are different. So, because uh, usually I think that uh, that's what I said before so far. <laughs> but, but humans are like that. We have to understand teen teenagers like that. So, that's the beauty of mentorship. Not family members, not parents, uh, secure one respectful person who can tell the truth occasionally to my kid. If ask the person to say something you want to share with your kids and he will do it, the mentor will do it, it will be effective. So mentorship is effective way of parenting. And develop spiritual maturity, mother Christ's love, See this, if you don't love them, I'm not just saying that if you, you are saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. Love should be internalized in your daily life. If you do, they know, they feel they are loved by you. People listen to the person whom they think, who they think is loving them. So if you love someone, the person begins to listen to you. If you love your teens, teens usually begin to pay attention to what you are saying. So you have to internalize the gospel message in daily life. It's very important. So Jesus didn't just say, serve another. Instead, he washed his disciples' feet like this. You have to show your love toward your teens. And some teens can show some doubt on Christianity. Right? When they are young, 
the only source for knowledge was parents, right? Whatever parents said, they believe. So they just regularly went to church, worship, came back. But when they are in their teenagers, they get a lot of information from atheists, teachers, philosophers, from books written by anti-Christianity mindset. So they can have doubt on Christian faith. In the case, don't be panicked. It is necessary process. It's a normal process. Then, first one, you have to remember that you have to be confident about what? Christian faith is robust enough stand enough to stand close scrutiny. Christian faith is not just a fairy tale, right? It's not fiction novel. Christian faith is based on historical facts. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical facts. So you don't have to be panicked. Oh, what if they find, my teens find Christianity is wrong or wrong? Don't be panicked. Our faith, Christianity is based on facts. So be confident. And discuss about this with open minds. Don't enforce blind faith. Just believe it. Don't say like that. If you do, they nod their heads in front of you, but they still have doubts in their hearts. They don't reveal their doubts to you, but they don't believe. It's very risky. So what you have to do is think of this issue, and if you need some help from books, these two books are so helpful. So Welcome to College is uh, this is a book written uh, for uh, college freshmen, Christian college freshmen. Uh, so if you have uh, time, you can read it in advance and you can discuss with your teens before they enter their college. You have two or three months of summer vacation, right? Before they go to college. This is a wonderful book. They deal with all kinds of, the book is dealing with all kinds of issues Christian freshmen will face when they hear anti-Christianity message from their secular professors. So this is a good book. Second one is, uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So basically, atheism is uh, another faith. So, because of there are a lot, because there are a lot of facts, historical facts, we cannot be an atheist. So these two books are good resources when your teens are struggling with doubts on Christianity. Practical application: family worship. Do you do family worship? Sometimes, yeah, it's good. When you do it, you should be relevant the need of teens. They think of their interest and focus on the topic they have. For example, relationship with opposite sex. It's an it's a intriguing topic to them because they are going through that stage of life. And flexible in forms. So you don't stick to specific kinds of forms. Be flexible in forms. Third one is prepare with God's wisdom. Second application is praying with kids at the bed. Do you pray with kids, right? At bed. If you say something when they are awake, uh, they think that you are, you are saying uh, some repeated unnecessary remarks to them. But when you pray, at bed before they go to bed, they think that your message is penetrating into their hearts because the Holy Spirit will work at the moment. So praying with kids, um, surprisingly from my experience, when I tell 
my church members to pray with their kids, they are embarrassed. Oh, it's so embarrassing because they have never done those prayer with their kids. But so teach them to pray with their kids. And third one is date with teens. Date set the date with your kids. Uh, uh, bring them to their favorite restaurant. Let them eat whatever they want. It costs money, but. <laughs> and uh, a continual attempts for conversation. Even though you attempt conversations, many times you fail, but that's okay. Even one time out of 10 times, if you are successful only one time, it will be successful. And begin with small talks. So remember, relationship matters. So, tips for a good relationship is, first one is, wait for the right time. Just walk or ride in a car. So whatever the situation, discern what would be the best time for me to tell the truth. You have to discern, you have, you have to pay attention to the appropriate time. Second one is, deal with diverse themes. We don't know what they are interested in. So talk many things and you can notice what, are, what, seems, to, what seems to be intriguing to them. And you can deal with that issue deeply. And allow room for disagreement. Yeah, you are not supposed to say, you have to do these things according to my will. No, you should not do that. Leave a room for disagreement, like hairstyle, the color of hair, dress, something like that. So you have to leave room for disagreement. The last one is this. Our goal is not a good final outcome, but faithfulness in the process of parenting. So I said before this one, remember this. Uh, if you keep this sentence in mind, you don't have to feel guilty conscience even when things are not doing, doing good. It's not good. Because my responsibility is just do what I'm supposed to do. Result is upon the interaction between what I do and what he respond to. So it's not about me. My responsibility is doing what I have to do as parent. That's it. So in heaven, in heaven, God will reward you even though your kid is not doing well, was not doing well. As long as you do what's necessary for godly parenting, including family worship, praying, and small conversation, and setting dates with them. I think I'm sure God will reward, irrespective of the result of parenting.